I'm excited about this morning, and I'm glad that you guys are here. And I also want to thank everybody that came out on Friday to the Good Friday service. Um, that was, I think, everybody that came had a special time together. And uh, yeah, and I'm looking forward. I already have a big plans for uh, something special next year. But uh, this morning. I'm not, we're, we're going to be in James. Do we have the, the PowerPoint ready? We're going to be in James. I'm not preaching uh, something different for Easter. We're continuing to walk through James. And so I may not have a uh, Easter theme sermon, so to speak, but I did wear this. So I came prepared for Easter. Okay. And uh, I didn't even show the first service this, so you guys can get a special treat. I even wore these socks. <laughs> So we're still Eastery, huh? And uh, but I am looking forward to continuing our walk in James this morning. Now I don't know if you guys have noticed an epidemic in our culture that I have, but there is a game that is destroying Americans from the inside out. I'm not talking about basketball or any sport for that matter. I'm not talking about a, a video game or virtual reality or something like that. I'm not talking about Settlers of Catan or Monopoly. No, the game that's destroying our relationships with each other and our relationship with God is the blame game. We see it in the leaders of our country. Constantly refusing to take, admit mistakes and take responsibility, but instead pointing the finger over and over and over. And of course, what's, what's baffling too is that we, the general population, will hypocritically point out their refusal to take responsibility while perpetuating the same culture in our own lives. I mean, how many of us have ever said things like, You make me so angry. Or I would forgive them, but... Or, well, it's not my fault. It's just how I am. I can't help it. You scroll for just a few minutes through any social media platform and you'll see numerous examples of the blame game. We see it in secular psychology and, and its uh, philosophy of treatment for mental health issues. Today it's, oh, you know, you didn't do anything wrong. Your brain just wasn't functioning properly. And hey, sometimes our brains aren't helping us, all right? That's, that's real. But the reality is, hey, your brain wasn't helping, and you did something wrong. As biblical counselor Ed Welch put it, if Billy hits another child, the behavior, behavior is wrong. But if Billy had previously been mocked, picked on, or beaten by John, you would certainly take that into account as you discipline and disciple Billy. And so sometimes there are factors working against us, but it's not an excuse for our sin. And we see the blame game all around us. It's in politics, social media, psychology, sociology, sports, academics, economics, and the endless number of lawsuits we have by people trying to blame others for their own mistakes. That's why everything we buy nowadays has to have those crazy warning labels on it all the time, because we need to be told not to blame our barista for our coffee being hot. And to not iron our shirt while we're still wearing it. And not to eat our clothes hangers. 
And we have to be told to take our children out of their clothes before we wash their clothes. Right there. Remove child before washing. Now, what does the blame game have to do with James 1? Well, James realized that Christians often play the blame game. We blame other people for our sins. We blame Satan. Sometimes we even blame God. Which brings us to chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Blessed is the one who endures trials, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. By his own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for this passage of Scripture that James brought into our lives and that, that you brought through James into our lives. And it's powerful. And, and it may not be the, the sermon or the, the passage of Scripture that we would expect on an Easter Sunday. But God, this is where we find ourselves, and I believe that this is what we need today. And I pray that we would open ourselves to hear it, to listen and to let you, to let you just do your work. Lord, I believe that there's so much to learn and to take and to transform us from this passage. And I just pray that, that we would let it. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So as we began reading this section of Scripture, we might initially feel confused about where verse 12 fits into the conversation because we've been working our way through James. And so some people see verse 12 as like the end of James's discussion on trials, right? So they would see it as like a bookend to verses 2 and 3 because verse 12 kind of restates verse 2 and 3 in a way. And so they would say, and now James has finished his talk on trials, and in verse 13, he's going to move on to a new subject. But others, myself included, don't see that disconnection. I see verse 12 as being the connection to James continuing to talk about trials, but he's shifting that to include the temptations that come along with our trials. Because temptations are trials, and trials bring temptations. And so we even see that the connecting language doing that because the original word for test in verse 12 is the same word for temptation in verse 13. The, that word can mean either test or temptation. And so what I see happening here is that James is expanding his discussion on trials to include the temptations that come along with trials. And Douglas Moo said, no solid line should be drawn between verse 12 and 13, as if James is dropping the topic of testing to take up the issue of temptation. 
His concern, rather, is to help his readers resist the temptation that comes along with the trial. Now, anybody with much life experience understands how trials are the perfect breeding ground for temptations. We should all understand that. Men men and women battling lust will often point to their greatest times of temptation being times of trials. Marital conflict or problems at work, exhaustion, money issues, etc. People who struggle with depression often fall into the abyss when life gets difficult and circumstances are trying. And Christians who, who battle with the God of their stomach will often run to their addiction to food whenever things go wrong. And we could go on and on with examples, no matter what our sin of choice is, be it anger, pride, gossip, unforgiveness, take your pick. I mean, hey, we are pretty, we're, we're good enough at sin when things are going smooth, right? But add some trials into the mix and we really start to shine. And trials were the context for James's letter to these Jewish Christians, right? We've, we've looked at that, how they were facing oppression from many sides. And we might ask ourselves, well, what, what were the temptations that were coming along with these Christians and the oppression that they were facing? I think Scott McKnight made a good point. He, James, responds to a messianic community where some are being tempted to use violence against their oppressors in order to establish justice. He makes it clear that such desires do not come from God. And so when we face injustice, which is a trial, we are often tempted to use force to get our justice. You know, we're tempted to repay evil for evil and to start depending on our own external strength and power rather than the internal power of Christ in us. And so thus these Christians were facing trials, and with the trials came temptations, which then become a trial in themselves. And James understood this. And, and he also understood our human tendencies. He knew about a problematic mindset that these Christians have that hasn't left us to this day. Because in the midst of trials, we face temptations, and then we start to do some strange mental work. Okay, we think about like God's sovereignty and how he's the creator, the ruler of the universe, and how he knows all things, and how he works all things together for his will and his purpose. And, and, and so then we start this line of thinking, well, if God is in control, then he let these trials come into my life. And if he let these trials in, then, then he let the temptations come. And so thus God is responsible for my temptations. And if God is responsible for my temptations, then he is to blame for my sin, because how could I have avoided it? Now, for a more concrete example of how this works itself out, I want to share a story that was told by Kent Hughes about how this happened to a young woman. A young woman came to Christ in a marvelous way. Her conversion was, from a human perspective, partly due to the fact that she had come to a very low place in her marriage, making her intensely aware of her spiritual need. But having met Christ in her extremity, her life immediately took an attractive buoyancy. She was truly a new person, and it was beautiful to behold. Sadly, her troubled husband did not follow suit as she had so dearly hoped. After a year of continuing marital disappointment, she sought help from a counselor. Instead of receiving help, she became the victim of a professional seduction. It began with extravagant sympathy, compliments about her attractiveness, ostensibly to shore up her fractured ego. 
then subtly suggestive comments. The next appointment, she dressed and scented herself with the palpitating self-attention of a first date. She was seduced, and there followed the inevitable history of liaisons and further damage to her fragile self-esteem. When she came to my wife and me, she was a ruined person, seething with bitterness and rage. To be sure, she was a victim of an unprincipled male in professional sheep's clothing, but she was also a victim of self. But amazingly, it was neither to him nor herself that she placed ultimate blame. Rather, she said through clenched teeth, I asked God to lead me to the right person, and he led me to this man. It's God's fault. He's to blame for what happened. This was the beginning of years of bitterness and estrangement from her Lord, ironically the only one who loved her with an everlasting love. Most stories like this do not end well. Happily, I can say that in this case she did repent, and after more than a decade her husband came to Christ. All this after the needless miseries of those terrible years. See... Hughes and his wife knew something important for this woman. And James knew something important for us all. God is not to blame for our sin. No matter how hard we try to make a case against him, it will crumble. And why? Well, James tells us God is not tempted by evil and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. Another way of saying this is that God is untemptable. And when we hear that, we might think, well, wait a second, what about Jesus? The Bible says that he was tempted in every way just as we are. And and we know that he faced a great temptation by Satan in the wilderness. And in the next verse, James talks about how we are tempted. And he uses this language of being drawn away and enticed. And that was language that was used to describe like hunting and fishing. So we're like being baited, being lured away, right? And that's where the difference is. In Jesus' life, he faced many lures. The world held them out there. Sexual sin, pride, anger, violence. Take your pick. And Satan held out that bait of power. And so when James says that God can't be tempted, he's not saying you can't try. He's saying you cannot succeed because God is not enticed by sin. And the world and Satan tried to lure Jesus, but he wasn't actually tempted to take the bait. And try as we may, we cannot pin the blame for our sin on a perfect God. God wants nothing to do with sin. Yet we try so hard to rationalize it anyway. Maybe like the woman in the story, we say, well, God led me into a trap. Or we'll say things like, well, God created us for this sin. One of the prevailing lies of our time is that Because something is natural, it must be good. We mistakenly think that just because something is natural means that it must be good because it must be from God. But we forget that sin has crept in. It's seeped into every nook and cranny, every pore of the world and of ourselves, all the way down into our very natural heart instincts and desires. We hear from the world, follow your heart. But the prophet Jeremiah said, hey, your heart is deceitful. It lies to us. It wants us to sin. Not because God wants us to sin, but because sin wants us to sin. And there's nothing untouched by the corruption of sin. Not our hearts or our instincts. Jude 
said in, in, in Jude verse 10, but these people blaspheme all they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. See, the argument of instinct is used especially to justify all kinds of sexual sin. Right? It's natural. It's instinctual. Look at the animals. They do this. They do that. They're free. And men and women are tempted to, to blame God when we're caught up in our lusts, proclaiming that He made us this way. God gave us these desires. And we say things like, well, I'm only a man. Boys will be boys. And we seek to justify our desires that go against God's design and commands. And, and the argument for nature and instinct should fall apart when we realize that there many people are naturally attracted to children. Oh, uh-oh. Is nature good or not? Right? And so we end up living in this, this world where we pick and choose the arguments that we want to make based on the sins that we want to indulge in. And so over here we'll say natural is good, but then over here we'll leave the argument out completely because, hey, it is instinctual to shake a baby when they won't stop crying. No one's trying to say that's good. After... Hughes shared that story about that young woman. He went on to say that, but the truth is, however we rationalize our behavior, yielding to our appetites is not divine, but demonic. This is why the gospel of Jesus Christ is a gospel of transformation from the inside out. I needed a new nature. I needed a new heart. I needed new instincts. I needed a perfect authority to tell me what was right and wrong. And praise God, that's what He gave me whenever I repented and put my faith in Christ. See, God wants nothing to do with sin, but we, we are quite different. And so James goes on to answer the question, well, if sin doesn't come from God, then where does it come from? Verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Now this doesn't follow our line of thinking, right? We might, be, we might accept that God's not to blame, but then we would proceed to lay the blame on our spiritual enemy, Satan. Right? Oh, okay, fine, it's not God. Well, oh, who's next in line? Oh yeah, the devil made me do it, right? But where is Satan in James' explanation of who's to blame? He's nowhere in sight. Satan is not to blame for our sin. And so then, if we move past Satan, what do we do next? We start pointing the finger at each other. Doesn't this remind you of something? I recall a situation where a man and a woman ate from a tree that God told them not to. You know, Satan had held out that, that, that lure, right? And they, and they went for it. They bit. And Eve says, it was a serpent. And Adam says, it was the woman. The woman that you gave me, by the way. You see, the, the blame game's not new. It's how sin started in the world. And there were so many options. Like, God, God, you put the tree here. Why did you make that tree? Why did you put it here? 
You, made, you gave me this appetite for food. You made it look so beautiful. Much like we would often say about our own lusts. Why did you do that, God? Satan lied to us. Eve ate first. Adam should have stopped me. Right? And so, but others are not to blame for our sin. They're not. No, it's not God who's to blame. It's not Satan. It's not my spouse. It's not my kids. It's not my boss. It's not the jerk who break checked me. Right? It's, it's not the woman who posed for the picture. It's not the internet service provider. It's not the director of the film. It's not the government. It's not my parents. It's not my socioeconomic status. It's not my social surroundings. It's me. I am to blame for my sin. When I choose to bite the lure, it is my choice. And I can try all I want to blame the one who made me, or the one who manufactured the bait, or the one who set the hook and held it out there. But nobody forced me to bite. I bit when God told me not to, and that's on me. Other people who are involved in my sin will face their own accountability and judgment for their enticement. But I have to take responsibility for my choice to give in. Douglas Moo also said, My circumstances may be the occasion for my sin, but they are not the cause of it. And Sam Alberry adds, The uncomfortable truth is this. The evil desire tugging away at us is our own. We can't blame any of the things around us. It's not the fault of our parents, our peers, our circumstances, our genes, or our God. I was temptable, unlike Christ, right? I, the lure was enticing. I wanted it. Mark 7, 21-23 says, For from within, out of the hearts of people... Come the evil thoughts, acts of sexual immorality, thefts, murders, acts of adultery, deeds of greed, wickedness, deceit, indecent behavior, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile the person. You see, we're not being, we're, we're tempted by our own desires, right? We're not being tempted by things that we don't want. You know, if you hate the smell and taste of blue cheese, then it does not tempt you. But that bowl of your favorite ice cream, on the other hand, mmm, that's good. I want that. That's tempting. I wanted the pleasure. I wanted the power. The anger seemed justified to me. The jealousy felt better to my nature than contentment. The pride was more appetizing than humility. I did it. I sinned. No more excuses. God, I'm sorry. Please help me. That's the attitude that leads us to salvation in the first place. And we can't leave it back there. Because the blame can never be shifted. The truth of James 1, 13 and 14 never changed. We don't just need to accept responsibility one time when we get saved. We enter a lifelong process of accepting responsibility while we continue to be saved. And what is the result of biting the lure? 
Whenever I do give in to my own desires, where does that take me? Verse 15, Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. I don't want to overcomplicate what James is saying here. Like, we could get into a discussion of like, like, well, is death the baby or the grandbaby of desire? And who's giving birth to what? And how does all this work? I think he's ultimately making a very simple point. We sin because of our own desires, and sin leads to death. We think, I mean, it's literally a trap. And we think that it's going to give us relief, but it just kills us. And then when Sam Alberry was thinking about the personhood, it's interesting how James kind of gives a personhood to, to sin and, and desire here. And, and in response to that, he said, we like to think that giving in to sin is a way of getting it out of our system. That if we indulge in it, it'll go away and leave us alone. James shows us how mistaken that thinking is. Acting on sin is never the end of it. It takes on a life of its own. That is so true. No alcoholic ever took their first drink thinking, oh, I can't wait to be a slave to this for the rest of my life. No one addicted to pornography looked at that first photograph saying, I am so ready to sabotage all of my relationships from here on out. No one who became known as an angry person developed and nurtured and practiced their habit with the hopes of being alienated from their loved ones. And I would venture to say that we've all done something that earlier in our life we thought we would never do. And if you haven't, you just haven't lived long enough. Do not underestimate the power and the destructiveness of sin. And when we let inappropriate desire conceive, it starts a process. That's how sin is. It breeds. It multiplies. And that reality is why we need to work on our desires. You see, to keep sin from breeding, my desires need to change. Temptation itself is not a sin, but if we keep walking around with the wrong desires, we're going to give more and more opportunity to temptation. And the more opportunity for temptation that we have in our life, the more likely we're going to be to bite one of those lures. And so what I have to do is to work with the Holy Spirit to let God replace my evil desires with good ones. And then there won't be so much bait around that can be used on me. You know, maybe some of you have had this experience with your children. You know, maybe you're working on a behavior modification. And of course, I have to say that behavior modification is not the end goal of a Christian parent. Heart tra transformation is the goal. But sometimes we, we have to work on a behavior. Like, for instance, we needed to get our son to stop sucking his thumb. Okay, he loved his thumb. I mean, that thing was his friend. It comforted him. He took it everywhere he went. It was very loyal, much like our sin often feels. But what he didn't know is that it was hurting him, like sin always does to us. But he didn't understand that it was distorting his mouth and the bone structure of his face, and it needed to stop. And so to get him to stop sucking his thumb, we needed to find something that he wanted more that would entice him away from it. And that was hard. It was difficult to find something that he wanted more than his thumb that would lure him away. 
And I want my life to be like that. But with God and sin, you know, I want Satan and other people, the ones who are baiting the hooks and holding them out there, to struggle to find any bait that's going to work on me and lure me away from my God. And the reality is that God is so much better than the sin anyway. It's just better just to stay with Him instead of going after it, just like it would have been better for the prodigal son to stay with the Father instead of going after chasing his own desires. But we forget about God's goodness. Which is why James finishes his thoughts here by reminding us. In verses 16 through 18, he says, Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. By his own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. See, in the midst of trials and temptations, we are often to, we're tempted to doubt God's goodness. This is why we have verses 17 and 18. This is, kind of reminds me of verse 5, right? When James is talking about how good God is. And when we ask for wisdom, he gives generously and ungrudgingly. God is good, right? Like, he loves us. And that doesn't change. And this universe that he created is, is, is always moving. It's moving so fast, right? And it's spinning and everything. We're always in a different position of the sun, shifting the shadows around. So maybe you've gone to a baseball game or a barbecue and you've set your chair down outside in the shade and then you go walk away and mingle for a little bit. And then you come back and you sit down and the sun's just beaming down on you. The shade's gone. You're like, where did it go? But God's not like that. He doesn't change. He's not shifting around. His desires for us does, does not change. His love is not moving in and out of our life. It's there. He's not like us. We change all the time. My desires change daily, sometimes hourly. My mood can be volatile and unpredictable. Right? The things that I like and dislike are constantly in flux. But God has always loved the same things and always hated the same things. He's always been good and will always be good. He's never sinned and He's never going to. And we have to remind ourselves of that regularly because we are forgetful people. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, Satan does not here fill us with hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of God. See, we can never be in a healthy place if we are questioning God's goodness. And we will question it if we let ourselves forget about it. And I love what James does here because he points out the greatest thing that God has done that we need to remind ourselves of. He saved us. Of course, I can only speak to Christians on that point, but for Christians, preaching the gospel to ourselves is the best way to remind ourselves of God's goodness. Recounting how He came down from heaven to live on this pitiful earth for us. And how He rescued us out of this, our sin. And how He lived that perfect life, never giving in to that bait and biting those lures of temptation. And how He willingly put Himself on a cross to die an unimaginable death. For us, and on the third day he rose from the grave. That is God's love and goodness on full display. That is what we need to remind ourselves of. So, what do we do when we realize oh, I, I, I can't blame God for my sin? I can't blame my parents. I can't blame other people. I can't blame Satan. It's time to take responsibility. If there's sin 
in our lives, if there's sin in your life that you've been justifying because someone else is sinning against you, then it is time to repent. We justify our sins all kinds of ways. Maybe it's too difficult and inconvenient to give it up. Or maybe we just like it too much. But the road to life is through repentance. That's where real life is. Now, does this mean that we give everybody else a pass for the way that they sin against us and the way that they bait and lure us? No. Nobody gets off the hook. No pun intended. Because all will stand before the perfect creator and give an account. And Matthew 18, 7 says, Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. You see, tempting others is a sin that many will have to account for. And when we're honest with ourselves, we've all done it to a degree. And if, someone, if there is someone in your life who is baiting and luring you and tempting you, you can tell them. In fact, if it's a brother or sister in Christ, we have an obligation to tell them. It's accountability. I have these kinds of conversations with my family, right? There are times when I have to repent and ask for forgiveness, and I need to make it clear that my sinful response was not their fault. No matter what the situation was, it wasn't their fault for my sinful response. But at the same time, after repenting, not excusing my sin in any way, it is good and appropriate to talk to others about how they might have enticed, lured, tempted me towards that sin. That's not making an excuse or a justification, but it is just healthy communication that helps us all. And when someone does come to us and, and they want to talk to us about maybe a, an action or an attitude or words that, that tempted them, then we have to humble ourselves and listen. Because at that point, we are tempted to just kind of discount what they're saying and justify ourselves because of their sin. And then what are we doing? We're just playing the blame game. So don't forget, and don't forget God's goodness. Right? Don't forget what He's done for us, the gospel. Don't forget that when we stand before our perfect Creator in all of His glory, how ridiculous would it feel to try to make excuses for our sins? Don't forget the crown of life that's waiting. In verse 12, blessed is the one who endures trials. Because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. It's promised. Eternal life is promised. What a great news that we look forward to. But even as we look around at this life, we have great promises. Like 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. That is a verse worth memorizing right there. 
hiding in your heart. And it's a great verse to end on today because it reminds us that no bait is too strong. No circumstance is too difficult. No person is too unforgivable. No desire is too overwhelming. No gene is too devastating. But God is good and He's provided a way of escape. Praise God. Let's pray. God, you you are everything that we need. You give us everything that we need for life and godliness. Oh God, help us to make use of what you've given us. Lord, the Holy Spirit inside of us and your word before us and, and our brothers and sisters in Christ beside of us. God, help us. Give us grace. Give us mercy. Help us not to play the blame game and and point the finger around us for our sins, but just to take responsibility. And and the taking responsibility would not lead us into a life of guilt and shame, but a life of repentance. And that's where life is. God, we pray. God, I know that when people come to church on, on Easter Sunday, like they're, they're not usually expecting a sermon out of James 1, 12 through 18 that's about how we, we are responsible for our sins and we can't blame anybody else. But God, we are not here for what we want or what we expect. We're here for what we need. And these truths are needed in our lives. They're needed in our culture. Oh Lord, help us to remind ourselves constantly of how good you are. Not to be forgetful people. Not to be uh, people who just hear the word and, and don't put it into practice. But that we would be hearers and doers. And just help us to see our sin. Lord, if there's something in us that we have been justifying, show it to us this morning. And if there is someone else who has been baiting us and luring us, God, I pray that we would have the courage, the love, really just the love to actually share it with them. And then it would just result in repentance and repentance and love and discipleship, life. We ask these things in the name of our precious, holy, untemptable, sacrificial, risen, Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.